0: Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we delight in every word that proceeds from your mouth. God, it's our our desire to receive your words. Lord, to be transformed by your words, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you teach us today? We pray that we wouldn't just hear words, but that we would receive the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would receive life in his name, that we would receive healing for our wounds, that we would receive transformation where we are not yet like you. God, we pray that you would bless your people today. Lord, you would bless us by your spirit, and you would teach us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Karl Marx famously has referred to religion as the opium of the people. According to Marx, religion is the drug of choice. When life is too much, when you are not what you should be, religion can make you feel better. Comedian George Carlin says that religion is just mind control. It's brainwashing. It's a a tool to gain power and to exploit people. And certainly, in certain circles, this may be the case. French dictator Napoleon Bonaparte says that religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. Apparently, the only thing to stop them is the fear of hell. Religion gives people a moral compass. What does Jesus say about religion? You might be surprised to hear that Jesus is about as favorable toward religion as some of these atheists. See, our text describes Jesus' confrontation with the religious system and practices of Israel in the temple. What they are practicing is fruitless religion. And what Jesus calls his disciples to, what Jesus calls you to today, is not a religion. What Jesus calls you today is not a new religion. He calls us to faith in God. See, faith and religion are not the same things. Religion is about what humans do in order to earn favor with God. But faith is receiving what God has done for humans. See, religion is using God... In order to get something else, to get something different from God. It's using God to get eternal life. It's using God to get blessing. It's using God to get something apart from God. But faith is trusting God in order to get God. Religion and faith are not the same thing. In our text specifically, we see that religion is fruitless while faith is fruitful. But it's been a while since we've been in Mark. So we need a little context. Mark's gospel is a description. It's a, it's a telling of the good news. It's, it's, it's telling about how the kingdom of God has invaded this world and is overthrowing the kingdom of the enemy by the power and the grace of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus demonstrates his authority in this kingdom throughout the gospel of Mark. He demonstrates his authority by teaching and by doing things that only God can do. He shows up on the scene and he starts preaching good news and then healing the sick. He shows up and he's forgiving sin, something only God can do. He's casting out demons. He's controlling the forces of nature with nothing but his words. And he's even raised the dead. So Jesus is announcing this kingdom of God. He is bringing with himself the authority and the power of the kingdom of God. And in response the religious leaders consistently challenge Jesus' authority. Ultimately, they associate Jesus' authority with the power of Satan. They say, it's by the power of Beelzebub that you are doing all of these things. But here in our text, Jesus is not the one receiving the opposition. Jesus is bringing the opposition. Jesus is bringing the challenge to the very heart of the religious life in Israel. He's bringing it straight to the temple. Now, the key to understanding this passage is to understand the relationship between the fig tree and the temple. See, as they are walking to Jerusalem, a fig tree in full leaf catches Jesus' attention. He sees it and he's hungry and so he goes to the fig tree in hope to find fruit something to satisfy his hunger and he gets to the tree and there's nothing the tree is fruitless there's no fruit on it and though it wasn't the season for figs as we're told a fig tree in full leaf in full bloom should have presented fruit with it. It should have indicated that that he uh, should have found something there, but it was empty. And so Jesus uses the fig tree as an object lesson. He uses it as a living parable and he curses the fig tree. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. May, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then after the scene in the temple, when they're returning, they see the fig tree and they see that it was dead. And so these comments about the tree serve to explain what happens in the middle. This is one of those famous Marken sandwiches where Mark takes one story and he bookends it with two halves of a different story so that those bookends will explain to the reader what's happening in the middle. And so these comments about the tree serve to explain what happens in the middle when Jesus goes to the temple. See, there's a lot of there's a lot of busyness in the temple. There's a lot to catch the eye, like a fig tree in full bloom. There's, there's, there's enough going on there to see maybe there is something there for me. Maybe there's, there's, there's some good thing that I can receive from. There's a lot of busyness. There's a lot of activity going on in the temple. Everything is in full swing. This is in preparation for the Passover. tons of people would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so what was taking place at the temple was all of this, this pomp. But there was no circumstance. There was a lot of busyness. There was a lot of activity. But like the fig tree, there was no fruit. See, religion, this, this desire to earn favor with God... Religion fails to produce fruit. Religion, as an attempt to earn God's favor, fails. It fails because this, this, it's, it's, an, it's an illusion. Religion, an attempt to earn God's favor, is an illusion. It can be attractive. It can catch our attention. It can seem to fit a need that we feel like we have. Just like Jesus was hungry and the fig tree looked like something that could meet his need, but it left him unsatisfied. Religion can look like something that, that we need, something that we long for. It can look like something that, that will satisfy us. And so we can put all of our effort into climbing our way to God, but like a mirage in the desert, the closer we get, the farther away it seems to move. It can never, never satisfy us. Religion in this way, it's an illusion. It can be attractive, but it's empty. Like a barren fig tree, religion in all of its rules and rituals cannot actually give you the relationship with God that your soul desires. And it also pushes aside relationships with other people. Religion is not only an illusion, but religion is an injustice. See, religion exalts the religious. It exalts some at the exclusion of others. It will exalt those who are are, are worshiping by the right standards and practice, and it will keep everyone else out. We see this in the text by the way the temple was built. So the temple in, in Jerusalem um, was a series of courts that progressively moved closer and closer to the center, uh, which was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. This Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant Uh, existed in in the temple. It was the place uh, where the manifest presence of God dwelled in the midst of the temple, in the midst of Israel. And it was the most exclusive place in the temple. The only person who could ever enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest, And only on the Day of Atonement, after offering a sacrifice for his own sin, could he then go in and offer sacrifice for the sin of Israel and sprinkle it on the the altar in the Holy of Holies. And so every other court outside of that became less and less restrictive of who could enter that space. And the outermost court was called the Court of the Gentiles, this was the least restrictive court. It was as close as a non-Jewish person could get to the presence of God. And so the, the, the very uh, truth that this, this court existed was a beautiful thing. The presence of the court of the Gentiles indicates that the temple was always intended to be for all nations. The fact that it existed was not keeping the Gentiles out. Everyone was kept out to some degree, but its incorporation into the structure of the temple was an invitation to the Gentiles to come into the presence of God, not just Israel alone. The problem is that this place reserved as a place for Gentiles in our passage has become a place of commerce. Jesus shows up, and it's in the outermost court. It's in the court of the Gentiles. We know this because the, the, the words translated um, those who sold in the temple is, is, is actually a technical term for merchants. And a merchant was most certainly, mo- most likely not an Israelite. And so by their very presence in the temple indicates that they must have been in the court of the Gentiles because they would not have been allowed any. Nearer. And so the court of the Gentiles is now overrun by money changers and people who are selling sacrificial animals. Just imagine like cattle and sheep and dung and birds and noise and chaos where it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Where the Gentiles were allowed in was overrun. By 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 business and by trading and and by uh, by by all kinds of of corruption. If the if the the chaos in there wasn't awful enough, Jesus says that what they're doing there has actually turned God's house from a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Rather than than worship, what's happening in this place is corrupt. See the the money changers. You, in order to come in and worship in the temple, everyone had to pay a tax that was uh, only acceptable if paid in Jewish coins. And so people would come in and they would exchange their Roman currency for Jewish currency. And just like today, if you go to another country and you go to a currency exchange, you're going to get charged a fee on your money. And they were charging exorbitant fees on this money just to be able to come in and worship. And you needed an unblemished sacrifice. And some of these people were traveling from long distances. And so it was difficult to bring uh, an unblemished sacrifice, even if they had one with them on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And so a lot of them just trusted that when they got there, they would be able to purchase a sacrifice necessary to to, uh, be in uh, alignment with what the law for sacrifices prescribed. And so the the merchants could charge these these high rates for these sacrificial animals. It was like, um, it's like going to a a baseball game or going to Disneyland and paying an arm and a leg for food because where else are you going to get it, right? Where else are these people going to find a sacrificial animal? So they can charge whatever they want. Where else are you going to go? And so they're just trying to turn a prophet. I took my kids to the mission in Santa Barbara a few weeks ago. My parents were actually married at the mission by Father Virgil there in 1979. And so it was cool to be able to take the kids there. And this is where Nona and Papa got married and, you know, all of these things. And we, and we took the tour and we were hanging out in the, in the gift shop and just looking at all the little, the, the little trinkets and all the, the cool stuff there about the Santa Barbara mission and all, all these things. And I overheard a gentleman come to the counter and ask, if they were allowed into the the sanctuary. They wanted to go into the sanctuary and pray. And the person at the the counter in the gift shop uh, told him that the only way to actually get into the sanctuary is either to attend mass on Sunday or to pay for the tour. And the man responded, it's getting harder and harder. It's getting more and more expensive all the time. To worship the Lord and and I think I think he was trying to be funny but it made me sad it made me sad that this is this is this is what's happening in the temple it's getting more and more expensive to worship the God of Israel it's getting more and more expensive it's getting more and more difficult as these money changers and 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 Animal sacrificial merchants, all of this is getting more and more expensive to just come and do what God has required. And so what was happening in the temple, the, the, the fruitless religion, the, the rites and rituals in order to earn favor with God is exalting some. Some are even profiting from it at the exclusion of others. See, religion as this attempt to earn favor with God is an illusion, it's an injustice, and ultimately, it's rebellion against God. See, there are two ways to rebel against God. You can say, God, I want nothing to do with you, and live however your heart desires, But you can also rebel against God by saying, God, I don't need you to save me. I'm good enough. Let me show you by my obedience. Let me show you by my religion that I'm good enough and that I don't need you. Religion as a set of rules and regulations to earn favor with God is actually rejecting God as a savior. Because if you can save yourself, through all your religious observance and activity, if you can make yourself good enough for heaven, then you don't need God. So, even the rules and rituals, they, they might be good, they're good things. But if we're doing them to twist God's arm into accepting us, then it's actually rebelling against Him as our Savior. Church, reading your Bible is a good thing. Reading your Bible is an important thing praying is a good thing. It's a good practice. Worshiping in, in song, worshiping by, by serving, worshiping in, in your, in your, with your finances and contributing to the work of the ministry, all of these things are good things. But if we do them in order to get something from God, then it's actually rebellion against what he has already done to give you all the favor, all the love, all the acceptance, all the salvation, all of the approval and the life imaginable. He's already given it to you in Jesus. And so if we do all of these things, these good things, but we're doing them to twist God's arm, it's actually a rebellion against him saying, I can make myself good enough because I read today. God, I'm good enough because I prayed today. God, I'm good enough because I didn't listen to that radio station. I listened to this one instead. I don't fill my ears with this music. I fill it with these things. I don't watch those shows. I only watch The Chosen 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I love The Chosen. It is not your justification. If we're doing it to twist God's arm into accepting us, then it's actually rebellion against him. You see, Jesus does not call us to a religion. He doesn't ask us to follow a prescribed set of practices in order to better ourselves and earn God's favor and forgiveness. He calls us to a relationship with himself, a relationship that is based on faith. Now listen, relationships will still have rules, will still have rituals, But these rules and rituals are in place not to earn favor with the person that we're in relationship with, but it's to celebrate the favor that we already have and to enjoy the relationship. See, husbands and wives have rituals. Let's say there's a husband and wife whose morning ritual is to have coffee together, right? They don't have coffee together in order to earn one another's favor in order to earn one another's love but they have coffee together every morning because they love one another enjoy spending time with each other having coffee in the morning together or doing whatever it is in the morning or in the evening whatever whatever good ritual would be a blessing to the marriage doing any of those things is not to earn one another's love it's not to earn one another's favor but it's to enjoy the favor and the love they already have together. See, relationships still have rituals. The presence of ritual doesn't undermine it, but it's the motive by which we pursue that ritual. Is it to earn or is it to enjoy? See, marriages will also have rules, rules that are set in place to protect the love and intimacy in the marriage, not to earn something. From the other person. See, I followed this rule and this rule and this rule, so you must do this for me. No, that's not. That's not the way that it is. We follow those rules to protect the love and intimacy that we already have, not to gain it from the other person. See, religion is about people trying to ascend to God, but the good news of Jesus Christ is that God has descended to us. See, religion will always fail, but Jesus saves. Jesus didn't require anything of us. He came to do for us all that God requires. He does what no law or act of obedience could accomplish on our behalf. He came to trade himself. He came to trade his relationship with the Father, for our rebellion against the Father. He came to fulfill every demand of Scripture and trade His righteousness for our rebellion. He came to die in our place, to receive in Himself what our sin deserved. This is not a new religion, a new and improved way to access God. This is good news. It's what God has done to access us. Jesus doesn't call people to a different religion, a different set of practices and principles. He calls us to himself because what he longs for is not a laundry list of things that you must do. What he longs for is you. What he wants is you. What he wants is intimacy with you. What he wants is communion with you. What he wants is a relationship with you. And this is good news. But in order to make people aware, in order to make Israel aware, to make us aware of the fruitlessness of these rituals and and practices, he had to bring judgment to that failing system. And so Jesus walks into the temple and sees all that's going on all of the distractions away from actually communing with God and by pronouncing judgment on the religious system he brings awareness to how it's failing the people he brings an awareness to the fact that this is wrong you've turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers and so Jesus is not the only one throughout Israel's history to pronounce judgment like this on the abuses in the temple. And Jesus even quotes one of these passages. He quotes Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. He says, "'Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered?' Only to go doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah will go on from this passage to describe how God is going to actually destroy the temple and send the people into exile for this sin. And it comes to pass. Jeremiah pronounced judgment on the temple because people are going out sinning and then they're coming into into the temple and making sacrifices going, I'm good. Now I can do another week of sinning. We can treat church this way. We can treat church this way. We live however we want, Monday through Saturday. And then we come into the church, we go, I'm good. Thanks, Jesus. See you next week. And so Jeremiah says, because of this, because you're treating the temple in this way, God is actually going to destroy the temple and drive you from the land. And so Jesus is not only acting in line with the Old Testament prophets by pronouncing judgment on the religious institution, but by quoting Jeremiah, he is also predicting a time when God would destroy that temple that Jesus was standing in. And in AD 70, Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in fulfillment of the judgment that Jesus pronounced on the religious institution. See so Jesus saves us not only from our sin, but he saves us from the institutions that would keep us buried in our sin without providing the deliverance that they promise. He doesn't just come to save us from our sin. He comes to save us from self-righteous religion. He comes to save us from both ways that we can reject. God. And here he does that by pronouncing judgment. It's Jesus' grace. It's Jesus' saving love in your life that he pronounces judgment. Maybe you're here today and you're experiencing a conviction of sin. Maybe something that, that, that you've been wrestling with for a long time, something from your past, something from your recent past. And you're experiencing that conviction. But I want you to hear me because the enemy, the devil who prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour will tell you something different. But you need to hear this, that conviction of sin is grace. Conviction of sin is God's kindness to you. Conviction of sin is evidence of the Holy Spirit within you pointing out the things in your temple, in your person, in your life that ought not be there. He is not rubbing your nose in it to shame you. He's making you aware of it, not so that he can sit there and wait for you to figure something out for yourself, but he makes you aware of it so that he can cleanse you from it. See, Jesus doesn't just come into the temple and judge it He comes into the temple and cleanses it by driving out all of the corruption. The temple is not the problem. See, God didn't give them something bad when he gave them the temple. He gave them something good but it was something that was supposed to point into the future about what God would do. No longer would the people have to come into the temple to worship God, but God himself would dwell in the hearts of his people. And so the temple is not the problem. It's what the leaders turned the temple into. And so Jesus here gives them the boot and he restores God's house to a house of prayer for all nations. When Jesus comes into your life, there's going to be things that he calls your attention to, things that ought not be there, but he's also the one who does the cleansing. If you're here today and you feel like the stuff in your life is preventing you from coming to Jesus, I humbly want to tell you, you're wrong. The things in your life, not keep, they do not keep you from coming to Jesus. But if you come to Jesus, he will drive it from you. Jesus cleanses us. But the most powerful work of salvation that we can see in this passage is how by judging and cleansing the temple, Jesus actually points to a time when he himself will supersede that temple. See, no longer will people have to earn or will have to enter the temple courts and stand outside of the most holy place or, or offer sacrifices to be accepted. But through faith in Jesus, through faith in Christ as the Son of God, He makes His his presence manifest in us. Going to a temple and performing religious rituals can never save us. But if God's presence in the temple moves from the temple and into you you now not only become a worshiper of god not not just a member of some religion but you have become a most holy place and are given access to him continuously. You are given a presence, a power, a privilege. You are given an intimacy, a relationship with God, the right to enter his presence, even more so than the high priest himself had. He could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And yet through faith, the presence of God, the manifest presence of God by the power of his Holy Spirit dwells in you constantly. If you have believed, you've been given access to him continuously if you put your faith in Jesus. And this doesn't come through religion. It doesn't come through rote religious practices. It comes by faith. This kind of religion fails. Jesus saves, but faith bears fruit faith will bear fruit in your life. The fruit that we're longing for, the fruit that the fig tree didn't have, the fruit that the temple didn't have, through faith, Jesus will bear fruit in your life. When the disciples point out the withered tree, Jesus doesn't respond to them by this, this, this other like, attack on the temple. He's already shown them everything he needs to show them and what happened in the temple. But he responds to them by telling them, have faith in God. That's his response. He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. They see it again and they go, Jesus, this happened. They they want an explanation. How did this happen? And Jesus' response is, have faith in God. Church, if you want to see real change in your life, if you want to see real change in the world around you, then do not settle for religion. Do not even settle what people will do. They'll take the name of Jesus and they'll turn it into rituals that you must do in order to earn his favor. And if you're not doing these things and that's why God's not doing this for you, no, that's fruitless. It fails. Do not settle for religion. Jesus calls you to faith. If you want to see real change in your life, if you want to see real change in the world, then do not stress how to better yourself or make yourself more lovable or acceptable to God. Trust in Jesus because it's not all the things that we do that earn favor with God. Faith is simply receiving what God has done for you and it's hearing and believing the good news of Jesus. Maybe some of you are here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus or maybe you've walked away in the past. The presence of God that you long for is available to you by faith. And this faith will bear fruit in your life. Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit The fruit of of God's presence by the power of the Spirit in your life are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are fruits of, of the presence of God in your life that we can anticipate. But here Jesus says specifically that the fruit of faith is prayer. In this passage, the fruit of faith is prayer. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is a breath of faith. We receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We inhale the good news and we breathe out prayer. We breathe out dependence upon God. Because Jesus has removed the barrier of sin, we're invited into communion with him. That's what prayer is. It's just conversation with God. It's our primary means of communing with God. And so Jesus says that we can bring all of our desires to him in prayer which means we should ask God for whatever we desire. You should ask God for absolutely anything that you desire. Jesus says, believing that we have already received it. Anything you ask, anything that you ask of God, if you do not doubt and believe that you have already received it, it'll be done for you. That's insane. That's that's crazy. That's beautiful. Listen, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you have already received, you have already received the fulfillment, the ultimate possible glory of anything that you could ever ask for. What do you want? You want wealth? God's given you eternal riches in the kingdom of God, in eternity, in the name of Jesus. You want healing and health? God has given you in the presence of Christ not only the power for healing today, but He has given you a completely restored, resurrected body in the future kingdom. What do you want that Jesus isn't better than? What do you want that that Jesus isn't already the fulfillment of? Jesus says, You can even ask this mountain to be thrown into the sea, and it'll be done for you. I want to point out, He doesn't say any mountain. He says, this mountain. What mountain is that? It's the mountain that they're looking at as they walk into Jerusalem. The temple mount. Jesus is saying that if you anything you ask of God, if you do not doubt and believe, then God will work in you a power and authority that is greater than the power and authority that established the temple the only power and authority that is greater than the power and authority in the temple is God himself. What do you want? Church, what do we want? What do you want for your family? What do you want for your life? What do you want for your spiritual relationship with God? What do you want for your church? What do you want for carpentaria, the coastlands, the nations? What do you want? The thing that we are most desperate for, God has already given to us through, by grace, through faith. And so there's no limit to what we can ask for. There is absolutely no limit to what we can ask for. Trusting that he knows what's best for us. Reality Carpenter, what do you want? What do you want to see Jesus do in your life? What are you longing for? What do you want to see happen in your family and in your church? Believe that God is so much greater than even your greatest longings. Believe that you have already received the fulfillment of any good thing that you can ask for. And then go ballistic. Ask for everything. He who has not spared his only son will not cease to give you every good thing. This is why prayer must be a priority in our lives and in our church. Prayer must be a priority. This is why we gather every Wednesday night for prayer and worship. I am calling you all, if you are able to, come and pray. Come and let's gather together 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday evenings right here in the sanctuary. And let's pray our faith faces off, asking God to do the things that only God can do because he's able. He's able to do far more abundantly anything that we could ever ask or imagine, scripture says. So let's come into this place and ask, what do you want? Prayer is powerful. Prayer can change things. Prayer can remove obstacles in your life. Prayer can break addiction. Prayer can heal marriages. Prayer can ignite revival. Prayer can unleash the power of God in your life and in the world around you because prayer is no longer an attempt to earn God's favor, but it's a celebration of the favor and the love and the acceptance and the relationship that we have already received. We're not coming here on Wednesday nights to ask God for stuff. We're coming here to ask God for his presence. We're coming here to ask God for him. We're coming here to ask God to unleash his power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in our town. We're asking God to do what God already desires to do. He just wants to lead his people there so that when he does it, we will be so careful and it will be so clear that he deserves all the glory. He wants to give you good things but he wants you to ask so that you will know the one that it comes from. So often, the reason we don't receive what we ask for is because our enjoyment of God is contingent upon what he's willing to do for us. But church, see that that is not faith. It's religion all over again. We don't pray so that we'll receive. We pray because we have already received the fulfillment of everything worth asking for. A life of faith is a life of prayer. And Jesus adds a life of faith is a life of forgiveness. See, religion can never remove the obstacle of sin. Sin is what not only separates us from God, but it separates us from one another. And so his sacrifice on the cross does not only reconcile us to God, but it reconciles us to one another. In fact, one of the truest signs as to whether or not you have actually reckoned with your sin and received the forgiveness from God is your willingness to forgive other people. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, uh, sorry, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now this does not mean that God will not forgive you unless you forgive others. Again, that would be religion. That would be earning favor with God. It means that if you do not forgive, then you haven't truly understood what God has done to forgive you. See, if the cross is enough to forgive all your transgression against God, then the cross is enough to cover the sin of someone else against you and to deny forgiveness is to deny the power by which you yourself are forgiven. It's denying the cross. If the cross isn't big enough for one person's sin against another person, then it's certainly not big enough for all of our sin against God. But it is. It is. And so put your faith in the power of the cross by forgiving one another. It's one of the clearest evidences that you yourself have reckoned with the forgiveness that you've received from God. I remember when my dad first became a Christian, There was a family feud that had been going on in my family for years. I heard my dad say some really spiteful things, really hateful things about some of his cousins. He'd been a believer for maybe a month and I was still testing the water, still making sure like, Are you really saved? Like, is this just like a deathbed conversion? What's, you know, and I remember like asking him questions and and he mentioned to me, he said, I've even started praying for, he named the cousin that um, was kind of the source of all of this. And he saw my jaw drop to the floor and he said, well, Adam, you know, after learning all that Jesus has done for me to love and forgive me, I figured the least I could do is love and forgive and, 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 and pray for her. And I said, well, dad, you know, scripture says that if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, then neither will my father in heaven forgive you. And my dad goes, it says that? I was like, Dad, you grew up Catholic. It's like the next line after the Our Father. And I got my Bible out and I showed him and he goes, I didn't know it said that. Never, never worried about my dad's soul again. The Holy Spirit was clearly teaching him that what he has received from Jesus, he should give to other people as much as he's able. True reconciliation may not be possible when someone has sinned against you. Reconciliation takes two, but forgiveness is a decision that you can make today. You can choose to forgive because of the forgiveness that you have received in Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. Forgiveness might feel like death sometimes, but it required death to forgive you. It required the death of Jesus, but it brings healing. And it may take a lifetime to to live in light of your decision to forgive but you can make that decision today. If there's anyone that you are harboring bitterness against, I just want to ask you to let it go. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. Whether they know Jesus or not, whether they know Jesus or not, you can forgive because you have been forgiven. Reality Carp, in this partnership with God, this this relationship with God, do not succumb to the allure of empty religion. Do not turn life with Christ into a dead list of rituals. But let the joy and gratitude of what Jesus has done for you overflow in all kinds of praise and good works. Do good things, go ballistic. Pray, serve, love, receive, show kindness, be generous, do all these good things. But don't think for a second that it's the works themselves that will accomplish your salvation. That's just the spiritual hamster wheel that Jesus came to set us free from. It's fruitless, but we do those things because of what he's done for us. And so we can celebrate what God has done and pursue even greater things than we've already seen. Church, I am confident. I am so confident that as a church, as individuals, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of this intimate partnership, the power of God that we have been experiencing together. Jesus truly is our greatest treasure. And so I'm calling you today, whether for salvation or for the difficulties that you're going to be facing this week. Have faith in Jesus and your world and the world around you will transform by the power of his presence. This is what he promises. This is what he gives his church. This is what we celebrate on Sundays. And this is what we're going to rejoice in together now. Let's pray. Jesus, all that you are, all that you have, all that you've done, Lord, we want to receive by faith. God, where we struggle to receive and and continue to try to make a name for ourselves, Lord, we pray that you would just gently adjust our hearts. You'd set us free from the things that cannot save so that we can receive the salvation of Jesus. God, we pray now that you would stir our hearts to worship. Lord, stir in our hearts to sing, to enjoy, to rejoice, to celebrate this good news and to just delight in the intimacy that we have in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who is, just, is struggling with unforgiveness or struggling with, with, with faith, with putting their, their trust in Jesus, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, your presence, which doesn't judge for the sake of judgment alone, wants to cleanse, wants to empower, wants to heal. Your presence wants to set us free. God, I pray that they would experience that freedom. And even maybe necessary, even before coming and taking communion, if there's someone in the room, that they would go and seek peace with that person. If there's someone outside of here, maybe they need to go make a phone call and extend forgiveness. God, we pray that forgiveness and grace and love would reign in this place as your presence is with us. transform us from the inside out. Make us bold in our faith and our prayers and our love. We ask it in Jesus' name.